Brazil Part 2, edited by Hugo Ciadzionis. This podcast was produced as part of Professor Fernando Lara's seminar on 20th century Latin American architecture at the University of Texas at Austin in the spring of 2020. I had the article on vernacular modernism, so I kind of wanted to show what this looks like in Puerto Rico and the two ways that um, Fernando addressed it. So it was the popular adaptation of modernism throughout all over social classes and then the additions people make over time informally. So these are some houses in Puerto Rico. So the first image is um, a neighborhood called Santurce, and this is what the old houses used to look like. We see that they're elevated and they're made of wood and they have all of the traditional elements we think of like houses and shutters and a nice little porch. Um, however, the quickly, uh, the housing style that was becoming very popular was this reinforced concrete box house. Um, and this is the original house in a neighborhood called Villa Prades, which is in San Juan area in Puerto Rico. Um, and then this is how the, this type of house has changed over time. So in the 1970s, people added a porch on the front. And what I think is really funny is this is my grandparents' house and they added this porch, but almost all of the neighbors on that street added the same type of porch on the front of the house. So it's during this time, everybody wanted to make the same type of adjustment during this decade. And then over time, people have continued to change their houses. So this is another neighbor, that their next door neighbor, who they've completely filled in the porch um, and then just put smaller windows on the top. And now the changes aren't as uniform as they were during the first set of changes that they made. This next, part is where I have the questions. Um, so this is two types of Levittown houses. And I find this um, comparison really interesting because Levittown in the United States was a way to build houses really quickly for the masses. So their construction method was very modern in terms of how quickly they built the houses, but the way the houses looked in New Jersey, for example, do not look modern at all. However, in Puerto Rico, the new housing type was very modern and they built in this type of way. And you can still see these houses in Levittown in Puerto Rico. So I was kind of thinking, in what ways do we let our romanticizations of the home affect residential architecture? So in America, it's sort of the romanticization of the past. And then in Puerto Rico, it feels like the romanticization of the future. And then how do we let materials affect the notion of the home and what we interpret as the home. That's an amazing comparison. Uh, last week, we had a PhD dissertation defense at our PhD program by Jennifer Tate, and she worked precisely on that issue. Uh, the dispute in the United States in the 1930s between people pushing for modern housing solutions and people pushing for traditional looking, a, a traditional aesthetic. As Stefania reminded us very well, everything is modern about the Levintown, New Jersey city, except the aesthetics. Uh, the infrastructure is modern, the suburb, the urban design is modern, uh, the appliances are modern, the organization of the internal spaces of the house 
is modern except the aesthetics. And uh, Jennifer Tate localized the debate around the uh, Federal Housing Authority, the FAJ. Uh, the FAJ was created by uh, uh, FDR, by Roosevelt government, to uh, ensure the mortgages. Uh, basically, times of high instability in the financial markets after the depression, the federal government created uh, an institution that would ensure the mortgages, pretty much like uh, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, nowadays. Uh, so that makes it easier for banks to uh, loan money for, for housing, for construction. And that institution in 1937 created a ban on flat roofs. It was, I mean, it was, the, the debate was very ideological. The debate was that modernism was either communist or good only for people of color, that white people should live in houses with a pitched roof. That's the meaning of white people's houses. And the ideological debate was going nowhere. So the technical office of the FAJ decided that flat roofs were not good for the United States. And they used a technical uh, uh, excuse, I should say, to ban, to ban flat roofs. So by not insuring the flat roof mortgages, they made any house with flat roof in the US much more difficult to build. Of course, wealthy clients and fancy architects, they can find mortgages. And for them, it doesn't matter if it's a 4% a year or a 3% per year, they can finance it anyway. So the elite continued building modern houses everywhere. But the housings for the working class done by big developers that build 300 houses at a time was completely forbidden because the FHA declined to uh, insure their mortgages. Uh, so the, again, the, the argument is aesthetic and ideological, but it goes through financing. And it's through financing that it changes the uh, landscape of an entire country. When I was looking around for some photos, I there's this website basically dedicated to the history of Levittown. And there's only one other modern example of Levittown houses in the United States, but apparently it was only ever in plan and rendering because it never got built and they were more affordable duplexes, but they were never built in the United States on the continental side. Yeah. I, I hope that Jennifer uh, publishes her dissertation soon as a book because it's, it's something that I never expected. I mean, I've, I've been studying that for 30 years now but I never expected how strong the race undertones were in that debate. So what we are seeing here in your slide, it's basically the idea that one house is for whites and one mm -hmm. house is for colored. It's very, very strong in all the debates, that, that idea. Uh, and it adds a complete new layer to my work in Brazil because I didn't explore that at all. I didn't look at race 
as a feature at all. Uh, as, a, as a good white Brazilian, I thought it wasn't there, but it is. It is there very much. I also, um, I kind of wondered too, if the American suburban home built from the 50s onward, which often it is in the ranch style or this like cottage looking style, if it's somehow a symbolic look at the past in our frontierism mm -hmm. in the US, very whereas much, perhaps yes. in, in Whereas, yeah, and so it's like, oh, we live on a farm. We have all of this land or whatever. And then the, you know, the more modern styles that are in uh, Latin America that might be more indicative of like, we are part of the future and we're looking forward instead of towards the past. It, yeah, it just seems... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, part of like also like the new image, for instance, in, in Puerto Rico, these houses, they were built for people that were leaving, that they, they were leaving the rural areas to move into the urban areas. So that also prompted like a change in lifestyle. So like a new aesthetic for a house also tied into those some um, social movements that, that started occurring Pretty much like in the 30s, right? Um, when I, when, um, when mother, modernism started happening in Puerto Rico. That's a great point, Kevin. And it, uh, I found exactly that in Brazil. And I interviewed the people who built houses that look modern. Uh, I find that they are not wealthy traditional families. The, the traditional wealthy families were very happy with their 19th century looking houses. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the people who migrated from small towns that arrived in the big city and wanted to show how modern they are. Mm -hmm. And that's a component that ties in what Catherine is talking about. The, mm -hmm. the houses become a way to show that people are modern when they really aren't. Uh, I, I, I documented several examples in Brazil of houses that have a modern facade, but the floor plan is very traditional. And when I mean the four plan is traditional, I mean the families have five or six kids, which is not modern. It's very traditional to have that many kids. And boys, for instance, the boys' bedroom have direct access to the outside. So the boys can come and go from the house to the street any, anytime they want. The girls' bedroom don't have that access to the outside. The girls' bedroom open to the inside, and they have to walk, you know, in front of the living room in order to. So the whole patriarchy, uh, sexism of traditional families is very much visible on the floor plan, but the facade is modern. So they're trying to show a level of modernity that is not really there. Mm -hmm. And it's still like, even just the materiality of using reinforced concrete is embedded in the minds of what I want to say is most Puerto Ricans and then Dominicans, because that's the other side of my family, of this is what a new house looks like. This is what you should live in. So I tell my yeah. grandmother, driving around Hyde Park with some of these wooden houses that are reminiscent of how people used to live in the countryside of Puerto Rico. She says, why do you want to live in that? It's made out of wood. 
So just yeah. the idea of even going back to wood, <laughs> even if it's a beautiful wooden house, people don't want to go back to that because that's old and and outdated and, and it's not looking forward to what, what is more modern. Yeah, and also um since I I I I grew up in the US Virgin Islands, so in, in there the um the way they built is like concrete walls and 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 the the roof is pretty much like a wood structure, but the structures are very like very thick, and and, and their idea is that they just don't want um, hurricanes to blow the roof off. So their argument for let's say um, the the wooden the the balloon frame is like it feels like paper, like it's too weak to to withhold. Yeah. Um, climate if that makes sense yeah so that's why they were that's that's like an, another layer as to why reinforced concrete became so popular in in the caribbean in general and it reminds me i know last week fernando you had like it was just kind of like a side comment where you had said like green space and like greenery and like like large mature trees are like mm -hmm. kind of like a privilege thing and mm -hmm. then like in a similar way where like green space becomes a privilege, like I think extraneous like detailing, like in the cottage house mm -hmm. also becomes a privilege. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like these people are saying like, we don't need to like live in these like hyper modern houses because like we are already modern and we can like stay where we're at and be comfortable. Whereas like for, you know, the people who, um, are kind of like living in these types of homes like they don't really like have that privilege like like this house is like a way to move forward and yeah that's, that's an interesting point because um when you look at it uh, like these modern houses almost feel like a blank slate for you to start adding on and and that's where like um estefania's point of the vernacular in the previous slide starts to kick to kick in because like these houses um yeah, it's almost like a blank state that you start adding on as you progress, as you have more wealth. Um, so yeah, I find that to be like really interesting. Now, Kevin, you're presenting on yes, the, the Paulistas. Yes. Yes. And then remind me to talk about what's going on with the Maspi by Lina Bobardi, the rainforest concrete at the Maspi. Yes. Um, so this. This is the, the, the School of Architecture by um, Al Batista Villanova Artigas. Um, so I, I, I wanted to bring um, this, yeah. So I wanted to bring these two examples. Um, so why, what, I find, what I find interesting about the, uh, about the, the essay in particular was um, the idea of universality and how universality um, was something that for instance the the cariocas were trying to bring as as a style like 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 modernism like like they were trying to in a way create a universal space by adopting european modernism but then like uh, but then years later the the paulista school actually by studying the climate uh, and when they started their like their designs like they ended up with a space that is almost Right, universal, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for me, like it, it's it's interesting just to see like how like such a wide space um, provides opportunity for a very specific 
in habitation, even like these very specific um, installations. And that's more, that's even more relevant in the Lina Bobaldi building in which the, the universal space of the, uh, of the exhibition space prompted for a new way of exhibiting art that is very specific to this place. Like I, I can't see that exhibition any other place besides in this building. Um, and then also just thinking about uh, Brasilia and, let's see, yeah, and yeah, and also thinking about Brasilia. So I, my questions were like, can a universal, like can a true universal space be achieved? And, and then thinking about um, Brasilia and how it was designed, um, so I brought up these images in particular. What I find interesting about it is that um, Brasilia was trying to present a new image um, of, of like new times to come, a post-war Brazil to the world. And my question for it would be that is it, uh, is it like a true, is it a new image of Brazil or is it just a reinterpretation of coloniality? And then for my third question, thinking about the Lina Bobaldi building and the Paulista School, is does transparency truly specializes democracy? Thank yeah. you, Kevin. This is amazing. All three questions. So let's start with the Brasilia one. Let's let's shift the order a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. Because just because so many of you wrote on Canvas about what would happen if Lucio Costa's plan was fully realized. Uh, and I, I don't know, what, what do you think about that? I mean, uh, the, the question of what would happen if the plan was fully realized versus is this a new image of a re or a reinterpretation of coloniality? Well, I mean, I, I of course, am very interested to see or how would it have played out, of course, but I also think that because it was a politically driven development that there's, I mean, it's kind of inherently colonial by trying to control such a broad swath of both land and industry and governmental buildings. And then of course the people, the workers who would be actually in Brasilia so in many ways, it's, it's just so political that I don't know how um, democratic it really could have been, even if his plan had been fully implemented. Yeah, um, one of the reasons why I also brought up the question of transparency is because like these buildings, like, um, Transparency here is translated into just a material quality, right, which is glass. But then there is like this layer, for instance, of water right in front of the building, which doesn't allow you to get close to the building. So these, so these buildings, in a way, the, the way they are positioned in the in the landscape is pretty much to give space for you to see it from a distance, and so you can't get up close to it. That's a great point. Yeah. And there's also curtains or something like behind the glass as well. It's like another layer of protection from the visibility into the building. Yeah. Also, there's something that I've uh, that I take away from this class 
um, is that there's no modernization without colonization. <laughs> that really stuck with me this whole semester. Um, also, I don't know, maybe this is just a, a strange thought, but this also reminds me kind of what was happening uh, here in Marfa, where architects were just bringing in mm -hmm. these pieces of art. That's almost the image that this gives me. Um, just like these sculptural artistic buildings put into this new landscape. Mm -hmm. That's a great point, Italia. Marfa, yes, it's a great point. Uh, Kevin, what was your other questions that we, we talked about Brasilia? Uh, yeah. Oh, the transparency. The transparency as a, as a as democratic space. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, like what brought me to that question was the fact that we always, like when we think of like, um, for instance, returning back to politics, when we think about politics, we think that that democracy and transparency and government, it's something, right, that's that's supposed to be there. But then when we translate that into architecture, we usually transfer the idea of transparency as a material condition. Um, thinking of Lina Bobaldi's, um, for instance, but then, but, but but then when you look at the the project by um, Villanova Artigas, which has this very hard edge, is actually more democratic than Lina Bobaldi's building that is based on a transparent material. So um, that's why I found like that really interesting conflict, I would say, between how do we represent democracy and how do we actually give transparency. So both of those buildings were designed during democratic times in Brazil and finished during the dictatorship. Uh, the School of Architecture was designed in the early 60s and completed in 69. And uh, Lina's museum, she started designing in the late 50s and was completed in 67. Both were completed during the dictatorship. Uh, the the uh, several things that are amazing on both buildings, and I talked about the School of Architecture before. So let me talk about the Maspi. Can you go back to the slide of the, the slides of the Maspi? Yes. So the the site is very special. You can see from the aerial photo that it's a little bit of an oasis of green. Mm -hmm. uh, there is an avenue down there, the Nove de Julio Avenue. This is looking at downtown Sao Paulo, the old city of Sao Paulo. And behind us here, or underneath the helicopter where this photo was taken, is the new Sao Paulo, the, the Sao Paulo of the uh, second half of the 20th century. And the Paulista Avenue, where the museum sits, this avenue here, is like an acropolis. It's like an elevated plateau that separated the old town from the new kind of suburban, uh, higher mm. upper middle class development. Uh, so in the 50s, they built a tunnel. There's a tunnel right underneath the museum here that yeah, facilitates cool. the connecting. Because you come from this avenue, you go through the tunnel, and you live here on the other side, on the south side. Uh, and, and that's this tunnel that most of the upper middle class people of Sao Paulo would take every day because they live over here and they work 
back in downtown. At least in the 50s and 60s, they did work downtown. So the site is very special. Uh, the uh, way that Lena designed the ground floor completely free and leveled with the street. And the museum is above and below. There are three stories below here following the, the fall, the, 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 the cliff down to the tunnel. And there are two stories above. And those two stories above are the most visible parts of the museum. They are hanging floors. Uh, why are they handing? They are handing because when you use a cable, you, you waste very little space uh, because you can hang floors with a cable that is only two or three inches thick. Uh, and if you had columns, those columns would take at least 20, not 20 inches, but 15 inches. So you reduce the space wasted during the structure and you maximize the flexibility. So those two slabs here, this one and this one are hanging from those huge porticos that, that she designed. And the huge porticos are of course, the image of the building. So it is, it is a remarkable building uh, by, by Lina. Now, the question remains, can we read that transparency as a democratic achievement? What do you guys think? Well, like B noted earlier about the curtains in, um, uh, was it Brasilia or no? Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, the, the palace is in Brasilia, yes. But it seems like most pictures I've seen of mosques, the curtains are closed or you can't directly see into the museum. That's correct. That's correct. The curtains are always closed to protect the artwork from direct sunlight. Well, and, yeah, and it works both ways. When you are inside the museum, you don't see the street either. I mean, that all makes sense, of course. Like, you know, just uh, just looking at the top right picture and thinking of also being able to see the city. I mean, it would be a, it would a be amazing, chaotic right? Right. view. <laughs> but at the same time, like, why create this massive, beautiful open space? I don't know. That, that's, a, that's a big contradiction, Catherine. Thanks for pointing that out. So there's all this effort of creating this beautiful uh, curtain wall, this glass wall, but it can't operate as a glass wall. So you have to control the sunlight. You have to control the views. So <clears throat> what is the glass doing? It's, it's, it's basically symbolic. Is it symbolic glass? Yeah, that was yeah that that, that was um that that's interesting and also just to look at the aerial photograph just to see that the true transparent space is the one that doesn't have anything, which is the ground floor or the entry level. It's just interesting to see that relationship. It seems um, without to like diminish what she was trying to do, but it seems almost like a shallow attempt at democratizing you know the space um it's like a, a facade basically and not fully integrated 
or able to be accessed. So maybe I'm like if you, overly broad. The, the more the more you dig into the story of the mask people, the more skeletons you'll find. I was actually able to to visit the museum like maybe four years ago. And like for me, like what was probably like the best part is the fact that you could see multiple pieces together and and you could produce like your own narrative of like the exhibition, which I think in that part it's it's like what's really interesting and democratic about this type of exhibition space, whereas in traditional museums is all like your experience of the museum is always curated and here you could pretty much create your own narrative or your own way of experiencing the space yeah i was about to say the same thing kevin like when i went years and years ago i just remember feeling like i was in a maze and so like you said like in other museums where like you know, you walk down this hallway and you walk into this room, it's like this very curated experience. Whereas here, it's like you get to create your own experience. It's not like someone is dictating it. Guys, we have two more meetings to talk about Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, and Ecuador. So uh, stay safe, uh, keep working on your papers. Uh, my suggestion is that. Uh, if you have any time this coming week to work on the papers, send me an email, send me questions, because I know that after the final week of April, you're not going to have any time uh, to work on the papers. The studio takes over, and it's only after final reviews that you're going to have a day or two to work on the papers. So take advantage of this coming week to send me questions and get my feedback. Okay, guys, I'll see you next week. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. Bye.